Good morning, church, and happy new year to you. We are excited for 2023. In fact, last night we had a good turnout of uh, men and women, young and old, that came to the church to, to pray and kind of pray in the new year. As you think about uh, the new year and think through just focusing your attention afresh on Christ, looking to Him, delighting in Him, looking for ways that you can grow in your own sanctification and holiness, uh, I think it's just valuable to, to think about the people that we're looking to, the things that we're looking at. You know, as we think about some of the giants of the faith, um, my question for us to start this morning is, who do you think about? Who, who often comes to your mind as you look in the scriptures? And of course, there's Jesus, but who other what other people do you want to model your life after? Certainly, you can think of Abraham and Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, Elijah. We've been focusing on John the Baptist. There's certainly others, but all too often, and probably to our shame, when we think about great people of the Bible, we often neglect to mention the great women of the Bible. There are many women in the Bible whose lives exemplify faith and godliness, integrity, courage, resolve, and there are other host of Christ-like character qualities that we see in women in the Bible. And when we go to the New Testament, we begin to read the Gospels, what we find is that oftentimes the crowds would marvel at Jesus Marvel at his teaching, marvel at his miracles, marvel at his character, certainly. But it's only twice in the New Testament where we learn that Jesus actually marvels. What does Jesus marvel at? Well, he marvels at people's faith. He marvels at the greatness of faith, and then he also marvels at the lack of faith. And if you've read through your New Testament, you've no doubt encountered the interaction Jesus had with the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. You remember the story? She comes to Jesus in great desperation. Her daughter is being tormented. She, she tells Jesus, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And when the disciples try to shoo her away and, and get her removed from Jesus, you remember the conversation Jesus told her kind of shockingly, that he came for the lost sheep of Israel. And you remember her response, she persists, and then he gives what sounds like harsh words. He says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the what? The dogs. Kind of bizarre that he would respond that way And first reading but then she gives an astonishing, faith-filled response, and she says there in verse 27, but she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And how did Jesus respond to that? Well, the text tells us that he said, oh, woman, your faith is great, and it shall be done for you as you wish, and her daughter was healed at once. You see, in the Bible, Jesus marvels at faith. And what we know about God is God gives faith, and he loves to see faith exercised 
in his children, when people put their confidence in him, when they put their trust in his power and in his ability and his willingness to help and to heal, God is glorified. This morning, we are going to focus our attention on a woman of great faith, Mary. But as we take up this study here, and there's a lot of Mary in this text, there are some concerns because when you take up a study on Mary, some have appreciated her and respected her in a right way, in a biblical way, but others have taken it way too far. Instead of giving her the honor that she deserves, she's been elevated to a level of superhuman, almost as if she's some sort of sinless saint deserving of worship. And I, growing up, I would never call myself a committed Catholic But that was my culture in East L.A. Hispanic, you're a Catholic. That was just kind of the assumption. But I did go to a Catholic high school. I did have lots of family who are still even now Catholic, some nominal, no doubt, but others devout. I went to um, St. John Bosco where I took uh, Catholic classes, religion classes. But I remember even as a young pagan teenager, hearing about Mary and thinking it very strange that you have to go to Mary in order to get to Jesus. And I remember 15, 16 years old, just thinking, it just seems like too many steps to get to God. And so I just dismissed that entirely. But listen, the Bible is very clear about the uniqueness of Mary When we think about Mary, no one stands out like she does. When we consider the type of blessing that was bestowed on her, the type of privilege she had. And so it's my contention that Mary should be admired. But again, there's a serious danger from taking that admiration and elevating it to a point of adoration that becomes worship, which ultimately is blasphemous. When I think of the millions of people across the world who hold to Roman Catholic theology, they have been deceived into believing that God's chosen instrument to bear the Messiah and the Savior of the world, that she is worthy of prayer and she is worthy of bowing the knee and worshiping her. And in all that the Catholic Church teaches in regard to Mary, I think it devalues the worship of Christ. Venerating Mary to an unbiblical position, see, instead of calling her blessed, like I think we should, we should honor her. She is a godly woman, an amazing woman. But the Catholic Church and the system and their doctrine and dogma, they have made a serious attack on Christ and the gospel. And so we're going to see that As we turn our attention to Luke chapter 1, let us pray and ask the Lord for his wisdom and guidance as we read and study together. Father, we are dependent on you for everything, God. This new year, as we begin to think about ways to grow in grace and truth, Father, we know that it comes from your word, from your power, from your spirit. And so, Father, in new and fresh ways this year, we want to submit the authority of your word. We want to have a stronger fight, a greater resolve against 
sin and all that would dishonor the name of Christ. Oh, Father, would you please help us, even this morning, to delight ourselves in your word. Show us wonderful things from your word. Help us to see that Christ is preeminent, that he is supreme, that he, above all else, is to be worshiped and honored and praised. And we ask this in his great name. Amen. We are in Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 34. Here's God's word for us. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country of a city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in the womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Our main idea, if you're taking notes, is real simple. In Luke 1, 34 through 45, it's revealed here that Mary was a woman of great faith, worthy of honor, but never of worship. Real simple. Luke 1, 34 through 45 reveals Mary as a woman of great faith, worthy of honor, but never of worship. And what we'll do with our time this morning is just look at three main headings. We're going to begin with Mary's verbal response to the announcement Gabriel gave in verses 34 through 38. Then we'll investigate Mary's visit to Elizabeth in 39 through 44. And then we'll look at Mary's veneration. And notice there that there's a question mark. How are we to think about this tremendous blessing that Mary enjoyed? So let's begin there with Mary's verbal response. Let me remind you, for those who were not here with us last week, that we are in a section here in Luke chapter 1 of announcement confirmation. That's kind of the heading over chapter 1. We looked at the announcement of Zechariah and the confirmation in our last message. Due to Zechariah's doubt, you remember, the confirmation came in the form of him being unable to speak for nine months. How ironic. He, he wanted a sign. He wanted some confirmation that what the angel said was true. And so that was his confirmation. You, Zechariah, will not be able to speak until John is born. And now we come to another confirmation section. But this time, it's much different. And we have to ask the question, what makes Mary's response and the question she poses back to Gabriel different than what Zechariah questioned? There, Gabriel says to Mary in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And then Mary's response in verse 34 is, 
Well, how will this be since I am a virgin? Like Zechariah, she asks a question, but unlike Zechariah, Mary doesn't receive a rebuke. Zechariah is not upset with her. He doesn't tell her that she's not going to be able to speak for asking a question. He doesn't get frustrated with her. He doesn't chastise her. And so we ask the question, why? What is the difference between these two responses? And again, the difference is simply this. Mary didn't say that it can't happen. She asked, how? Because virgins don't have babies. And we think of how she could have responded, maybe like Sarah who laughed when God said that she would have a child in her old age. She could have scoffed at this news, but she doesn't do that. But again, Zacharias says almost the same thing. How shall I know this? But the big difference is he's asking for a sign. How will you do this? How will I know this for sure? And so the big difference as we enter back into this narrative is that Zachariah's question contains cynicism, Mary's question, genuine confusion. I don't know how this is going to happen. But what we see even in Mary asking the question is that she's assured it's going to happen. She's just looking for the how. How is this going to happen? Zachariah's question reveals a lack of faith. And you say, well, Dom, how do do you know that? Well, because look at verse 20. Gabriel told him that exact same thing. His inability to speak for nine months is a direct result of his unbelief. Mary's question is asked in faith. She's exercising faith. She believes what God said is true, and it's settled in her own mind that if God said it, he will do it. Now, there are several things I think we can learn from Mary's response. Far from being skeptical, far from being um, over-analytical, she's humble. She's receptive. She's teachable. She received God's word from God's messenger with confidence. And this is why Mary, at 13, 14 years old, is a young girl of such great faith. And I think it's also helpful for us to recognize that Faith doesn't mean that you never ask questions. There are many of you that don't know how things work, don't understand things in the Bible, don't know how God works. God welcomes your questions. The big difference here is how we're asking, what attitude we're asking our questions, because God loves to give wisdom as we pray for understanding. He loves to grant that. Now look there at verse 35 and see how Gabriel responds to Mary's question. Here's Gabriel's response. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. Look there at the text. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. We 
profess, we proclaim in a triune God here at our church because that is exactly what the Bible teaches. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than here at the announcement. The Holy Spirit, the Most High, the Holy Child who is called the Son of God. What's happening here is supernatural. It is miraculous. The the previous miraculous conception, a, a woman in her old age who's way past the point of bearing a child, well, this tops that. This is on another level. And this is the whole point of the narrative, that all of the attention, all of the focus needs to be on Jesus, the Savior that is born. And when we take our eyes off Christ and put them on someone lower, like Mary or John the Baptist or Gabriel or Zechariah or anyone else, we do a great disservice to our faith and dishonor God. Well, how is this going to work? How is this conception going to work? Gabriel says it's not going to be with a man. If you talk to a Mormon, they'll tell you that God came down to the earth and he actually had sexual relations with Mary. Mormon uh, apostle Bruce McConkie writes in his Mormon doctrine, page 547, he writes this, Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. I don't care how religious, how moral, how nice Mormons are. That is a damnable heresy. That is false. That denies the virgin birth, and it is just straight-up blasphemous. If... The Bible wanted to communicate that God was going to have sexual relations with Mary. It probably would have used the same word that Mary used. I have not known a man. Gabriel would have said, well, don't worry, Mary, because God is going to come down and know you. But what do we see in the text? Here it says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It's a sweet term. It, it harkens back to the Old Testament when the Shekinah glory comes and rests over the tents. The point of this is to say God's power and presence will come and do this work. That same Greek term is actually seen at the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain and the, the, the Shekinah comes and overshadows the apostles. Look, the Father didn't come down and impregnate Mary, neither did the Spirit. What this is communicating is that the Spirit of God in a very powerful way created life and didn't need a human father and didn't need normal sexual relations. And what we see here is a direct allusion going all the way back to Genesis and creation. So just as the Spirit of God was hovering over the void and empty and dark waters and God spoke, life came into existence. And just as in Genesis chapter 2, where God from the dust creates man, he creates in the womb. When Gabriel says nothing is impossible with God, that's exactly what he means. If God wants to, he can create out of nothing. And so this whole reenactment of Genesis 2 is to point us to the creation of Adam, but something better than Adam is here. Something greater, a new and better Adam is here. 
Now, what's the result of this overshadowing? Look at the rest of verse 35. It says, and for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. This is an extremely enlightening purpose statement. Let's just see if we can put the pieces together because there's lots of parallelism, parallelism here. The Holy Spirit is connected to the Holy Child. The power of the Most High is connected to the Son of the Most High. And the Son of the Most High is the Son of God. You say, Dom, well, what, what's the significance there? Well, what Gabriel is telling Mary is that you don't just have a baby in there. God is in there. That is what Gabriel is saying. All the titles, all the descriptions are pointing to deity. It it boggles my mind when people still say, oh, that's not in the Bible. I mean, it's clear as day that the most high becomes the most low by entering into a mother's womb. So Luke is unmistakably clear. It is God in the womb. And because of this announcement and confirmation section, the angel Gabriel gives even more good news. Look there at the text. Mary doesn't ask for further evidence the way Zechariah does, but look there at verse 36. It says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived the son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. How sweet. Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but Gabriel gives it anyway. Gabriel provided that great news to Zachariah and Elizabeth of their miraculous pregnancy. That confirmation would have no doubt given Mary confidence. So so Mary's already thinking in her mind, I believe your word, but it's going to be great when I go and visit with Elizabeth and have all of these things confirmed. You know, I think oftentimes we think about the announcement, which is fantastic, and the visit, which is awesome, and the manger, which we celebrated, and it's like, boom, Jesus comes and everything is great. But on a real personal level, get into the shoes of Mary. Because we read the story, we just flip the page, and it's like, boom, there he is, and he's doing his ministry already. But Mary, day after day after day, is thinking, how am I going to explain this? Who, who is going to believe this? Remember, she's going to have to return home with a tiny baby bump. She's with Elizabeth for three months. She's going to come home, and mom and dad are going to be scratching their head. Wait a second. You're betrothed. You were away. What are you doing with a baby in your belly? People would have been questioning her integrity. People would have been thinking the worst of her. I mean, it's going to be a rough road for her. Gabriel said, this is going to be a blessing to you, an unfathomable blessing. But yet Mary is going to have to deal with a lot of ridicule. Matthew even tells us that when Joseph learned of Mary's pregnancy, he would have done what you and I would have done. What's going on here, Mary? I love you, but that wasn't me. And when you think about the consequences during that day especially, of the disgrace, of the breaking of the betrothal, which would be equal to divorce. Joseph, it's clear, he's not buying that the Holy Spirit impregnated her because he wants to divorce her. And think about her status now as 
if she gets beyond not being stoned by the community, what it means for an unwed single woman in that culture, the public shame, the ridicule, and even if she's not killed, now she's going to have unsurmountable issues trying to live her life. Well, it's not until the angel visits Joseph in a dream, you know this, that he reassures her, look, Mary hasn't been unfaithful. She's godly. She's a servant of the Lord and declares to Joseph that he needs to go ahead and marry her and confirms that the pregnancy originated with God himself. And what we see is two young people who trust God's word. And Joseph hears the news that the name will be Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Luke doesn't tell us a whole lot of details about what the family was thinking and what the community thought of the pregnancy. But what we do know, because we get glimpses in the gospel, that as Jesus grew up, oh, people reminded him of it. You're illegitimate. You're a bastard child. That You have a demon. You're a Samaritan. In fact, in John 8, 41, they said, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father unlike you talking to the creator of the universe. And all that just to say that Mary and Joseph didn't have it easy. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to get into the the feeling and the emotion of these young people as they're experiencing all this firsthand. But it also hints us to the fact that it's going to take a strong, courageous, godly woman It's going to take a woman full of faith to endure all this derision. And you add to that if her breadwinner and partner and best friend died, which we think maybe Joseph did because we see him in the temple at age 12 looking for Jesus. Then after that, there is no mention of Joseph. So it could have been that from a very young age, Mary is a widow and she's doing this on her own. Oh, it's going to take a special woman. And that's exactly what we see in Mary. She's a woman of great faith, a woman of obedience. Look at verse 38 at her response. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. The only action it says that she takes up is obedience. Obedience. This is often called Mary's fiat. It's not her little Italian ride that gets like fantastic gas mileage, but that's where that word comes from. Fiat in Latin simply means let it be. Mary's wish here with all of her heart, with all of her mind, with all of her soul is God, you said it, accomplish it according to your will. Her desire is that God's word be fulfilled in her. And so would we say that Mary is amazing? Absolutely. She is a woman of great, great faith, great humility, great receptivity to God and his word. Well, after Mary makes this verbal response, she makes her visit to her cousin Elizabeth. Look there at verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 
Without hesitation, Mary gets up and makes haste to get confirmation. The text says it was in a hurry that she makes her way toward Judah. Now, the trip from Nazareth to Judah is about 70 miles. So if we all got together and we just started walking all the way to San Jose, that's what it would be like. But on the roads that we have, it'd be fairly nice. Here, it's not the same thing. So Mary, no doubt, would have not went by herself, but with a caravan or with some family, And she's going to visit her cousin. Now, as she goes to visit Elizabeth, we ask the question, why? Again, we've said confirmation, but I want you to consider this, that Mary is going to visit Elizabeth, yes, to get confirmation, but to enjoy sweet fellowship. And I love that the Bible presents it this way. You see, no one's going to understand Mary, what she's experiencing, like Elizabeth is. And just by way of application, as we think about men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, one of the most beautiful things in the life of the church is that we just don't segregate and segmate. Let's stick with segregate. We don't just get off into age-appropriate groups. That's helpful, high school ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry. But grace groups, the local gathering, God's intent for us as a body of Christ is for the younger and the older to be together, for discipleship to happen on every single level. And what we see here is Mary is a teenager. Elizabeth, her cousin, is probably four times older than her. And they enjoy sweet fellowship together. Look at verse 41. How did Elizabeth respond to Mary's visit? It happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, no doubt you've read that before, but the question that you must ask is how did Elizabeth know? How did she know? I mean, it says here she immediately recognized that Mary is pregnant. And what Luke does here very intentionally is that he tells us that it is at the greeting. Mary walks through the door, says, hey, Liz, and she cuts her off and begins to tell her that she knows that her Lord is in that valley. Now, you have to think critically here, because Gabriel did not tell Zechariah that their young cousin was going to be pregnant with the Son of God. Right? He, he could write things out, so he's communicating to Elizabeth, but he didn't tell her that. And so what we have here with this greeting, Elizabeth having no prior knowledge, is that the Spirit of God is at work and made it clear to her that Mary had a baby in her womb. This also proves that this is extremely authentic. It can't be manipulated. This can't be manufactured. It's, it's not like Mary told Elizabeth the story about Gabriel's visit and then Elizabeth spoke up. No, Elizabeth would have been totally surprised. I don't even think Elizabeth knew that Mary was coming. Mary couldn't hit her up on the cell phone or text her and say, hey, I'm visiting you. So, so Mary shows up and it is a surprise to Elizabeth and Elizabeth knows immediately. You say, how in the world can she know that? Well, look at what the text says. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what does that feeling, feeling produce? Three things, just here in the text. She pronounced a blessing. She expressed her pleasant surprise. 
and she's pulsating with joy. Look at those with me, verse 42. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, the pronouncement of blessing. And then verse 43, And how has it happened that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The pleasant surprise. And verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in the womb for joy. She there is pulsating with joy, literally. Now, you know this. It's not unusual for a baby to be shaking and moving and kicking during six months of pregnancy. Becky knows this, but the timing of the event is very unique. You see, prenatal John, he doesn't just do a little judo kick. He actually jumps in the womb, pointing his mom to Jesus. And you say, well, what is Luke doing here? And this is what he's doing. He wants you and me to catch the sheer joy of this moment. That God is fulfilling his promises from long ago. That there should be an ecstasy and elation recognizing that God is finally fulfilling his word. And it's not just that they're pregnant and they have babies, but what these babies will do, the forerunner to the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And did you catch what Elizabeth said there in verse 43? This is the first time Mary heard such a thing. Look at what it says. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. And you say, well, what does she mean by my Lord? If you go back to verse 16, we heard that John would turn many people to the Lord their God. And then the next line we're told, he will go before him. So what the question is, is who is the him? Who is John supposed to go before? And again, you connect all the dots. The him has to be the Lord of verse 16. And once again, Luke is leaving no ambiguity that this baby is the Lord God himself. As Sam mentioned that we're reading through 1 John, as as the men will take up this study in just a couple of weeks. And I can't help but notice all the places where the Spirit of God is the one that controls our confession. How do we know that we're Christians? How do we know that we're truly in Christ? How do we know that we've been saved? How do we know that we've been redeemed? Well, what is it that you truly confess? Because the Spirit of God is the one, 1 John 4, 2 says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess is not from God. And that rules out tons of other false religions. Because we believe that God came in human flesh, and we believe that he is both God and man. It is the Spirit of God that testifies this truth to Jesus' identity. He does that for Elizabeth here. He'll do that for Simeon later on. And then for Anna, he does that for Nathaniel. He does that for Peter. So all of them confess by the power of the Spirit, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Redeemer. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, Luke's point, again, is that all of this should absolutely thrill us, that he's finally here, that redemption has come, and the fact that with him comes deliverance from oppression, from sin, that we're going to finally experience full forgiveness, 
that our eternity will be secured by his great work on the cross. We now move from Mary's verbal response to Mary's visit. And now lastly, with a question mark, Mary's veneration. Look at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. If there's one thing that's clear just from this narrative, it is that there's a lot of good news and there's a lot of blessing. And we've already said Mary's an amazing woman, an extraordinary woman. In fact, uh, MacArthur wrote a book, I think, called Extraordinary Women. And Mary is highlighted in that book. She's highly favored. Uh, That is not said about others. And so I believe, again, like the great men and women in the Bible, that Mary should absolutely be honored because God chose her before the foundation of the world. You look back to Genesis, born of a seed of a woman. Here she is. This is amazing. She is the fulfillment of prophecy. And yet, at the same time, understanding this unique privilege, even Mary understands it. Look at verse 48 of Luke 1. She says, For behold, from this time all generations will count me blessed. But here's the difference. We have to ask the question, in what way? Why blessing? Is it because she's a sinless saint? Or was it because of the remarkable grace that was extended to her by God? In other words, is Mary blessed because she is a dispenser of grace or a recipient of grace? And for many of us, it seems like, well, that's an easy answer. But let me remind you, that there is a church that meets down the street that would say differently. There are millions of people that think differently. The Catholic Church argues, and they've argued this for centuries, that Mary is more than just a highly favored woman. According to their doctrine, she's not only the mother of God, she's the mother of the church. And it doesn't stop there. She's not only the mother of the church, but her conception was immaculate, She was a perpetual virgin. She is a co-redeemer with Christ. She was assumed into heaven, meaning she didn't die. And she's given the label queen of heaven. I don't know if you are aware of all these things, but you can can look at all these things yourself. I'm I'm not making this stuff up. This is what I was taught. This is on their website. You can go to vatican.va and you can read their catechism. Go there to section two, mark the creeds, article nine, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, paragraph six, Mary, the mother of Christ, the mother of the church, and you will see blasphemous statement after blasphemous statement about Mary's role. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this out, and I've had people even question me and challenge me and say, hey, Dom, do you hate Catholics? Absolutely not. Love, love all people, love my family. But I have an obligation as a minister of God's word to not only proclaim the truth, but to protect against false doctrine, especially a doctrine that will damn people to hell. So we're going to ask just a few questions as we think through what's most important in all the world, and they fall into the category of three S's. What are the most important things in the world? What does the scripture say? Who is the savior? How are we saved? 
If the Catholic Church gets those things right, it's all love and kumbaya. But if they get it wrong, we've got a serious problem. So was Mary's conception immaculate? The Catholic Church teaches that Mary was preserved from original sin because the merits of Christ. And even though this teaching wasn't declared to be church doctrine until 1854 by Pope Pius IX, many people, even in the Catholic Church today, believe that Mary was sinless. And just to be fair, I know that there are Catholics that make a distinction and say she was only sinless before and during the conception, but afterwards she may have sinned. But others believe, no, she remained sinless throughout her lifetime. And my question to you is, is that what the Bible teaches? You tell me, for all have and fallen short of the glory of God, and Mary is no exception. You see, one of the reasons that we even see that there's great rejoicing is because she recognizes that she needs the Savior that's in her womb. She's a sinner like everybody else, and she needs a Savior. How about her virginity? Was it perpetual? According to Roman Catholic doctrine, Mary wasn't a virgin at the conception, just wasn't a virgin at the conception, but she remained a virgin throughout her lifetime. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the Bible says that Jesus had brothers and sisters and names them. Well, their response will be, well, that's not from Mary, that's from Joseph's previous marriage. And they'll begin to do some gymnastics here so that they can attest to the fact that Mary did not have sexual relations. Turn to Matthew chapter 25, I'm sorry, chapter 1, and we'll look at 24 and 25, just a plain reading of the text to help us determine if this is true. It says here, and Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Look at verse 25, but kept her a virgin. What's the next word? Until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. You see, in other words, even though they were married, Mary and Joseph obeyed the word of the Lord. They refrained from consummating their marriage until Jesus was born. But after that, It was a different story. They would have enjoyed the marriage bed, and to demand that the text teaches a perpetual virginity is highly problematic. You say, Dom, how does that make any bearing on anything? Well, unlawful views of sexuality, unwarranted vows of celibacy. You know that the Catholic Church has struggled with the the whole pedophilia and abuse, and those are just a few consequences that result from a distorted view of Mary's perpetual virginity. Well, what about this? It says that she was co-redeemer with Christ, and this is the one that probably angers me the most. I I read some of this to my wife. She thought I was making it up. I said, babe, look right here. This This is the Vatican's website. She said, there's no way. Babe, this is what they teach. She said, no way. Read it for yourself. Catholic Catechism. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. They are equating Mary with the Holy Spirit of God. Mary is credited at least in part with the salvation of sinners. Again, Catholic Catechism, paragraph 969 
taken up to heaven. She did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Catholic Catechism, you, Mary, conceive the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. It's no wonder that Catholics are encouraged to venerate, pray to, and trust Mary. And for years, I, hell Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And I would say this over and over again, over and over again. I'm not done. Catholic Catechism, by asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. We give ourselves over to her now in the today of our lives and our trust broadens further already at the present moment to surrender the hour of our death wholly to her care. Church, how many mediators are there between God and man? One, Jesus Christ. This is a good and acceptable insight of our God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the full knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, that man, Jesus Christ. You say, well, did she get assumed into heaven? Meaning, did she die? You look in your Bible, you won't find it. You say, why not? Because it's not there. Is she called the queen of heaven? You know, her coronation, her her queenship is celebrated every year, August 22nd. Just so you know, you can put it on your calendars. St. Dominic is August 8th. You you can probably find your name somewhere in there. The whole calendar is filled with the saints. But she's not just called the queen. She's called the mother of the church. Catholics try to clarify that they don't actually worship and adore Mary like they do God. They call that latria. It comes from a a Greek word, which means service and worship. That's the only worship that God alone deserves. But they say what they do for Mary is not called latria. It's called dulia, which is Latin for veneration. They're just, they say that we're paying great respect to her and reverence for her. And again, Protestants have no problem paying her the respect and honor that is due her but they take it too far. No other saint in the Catholic Church has her power of intercession. And so you don't go to Jesus, you go to Mary. And you say, where in the world do they get this from? I'll tell you. They go to John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine, where Mary goes and requests of Jesus. And they say, that's why we do it. Because if you want to get to Jesus, then you go to the person that was most important to Jesus, you go to her mom. And so rather than going to our one mediator, you go to mom. And if you convince mom, then maybe she'll convince Jesus. And the bewildering thing is that even in that account, Jesus actually rebukes Mary because her mind is not on his mission and purpose. And he says in John chapter 2 and verse 4, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. The only place, the only evidence that they go to to say you go to Mary to get to Jesus is the exact same place where Jesus gives a corrective statement to his mom. Look, Mary is a great woman of faith. 
Not because she was inherently great, but because God is inherently great and he bestows his blessing on her. The hero in this story is not Mary. The hero in the story is the baby, the the son of God. There is nowhere in the Bible where we see Mary elevated and worshiped and exalted. No one is praising her or bowing down to her or giving her that kind of adoration. If the angels say, get up off your knees and do not worship me, I'm a servant just like you, then why in the world would we get down and pray to Mary? And why would we think that she's a stepping stone to get to the God who made himself available? The veil is torn. He's made himself wide open to all of us. Listen, next week we'll look at Mary's great theology in her song of praise called the Magnificat. But listen to this. Mary's theology stands in strong contrast to Roman Catholic theology. Don't hear me wrong. I love people in the Catholic Church. I want them to know the truth. But every time that you distort the Scripture, the way of salvation, and the Savior, we're always going to have a problem. This is is the reason why the Protestant Reformation happened. Because we need to return to the five solas. How are we saved? By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. We're basing this on the Scripture alone. This is all for God's glory alone. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. It's undeniably true. Lord, and it should not just irk us, but hurt us that there are many who want to have a relationship with you, many who want to know you. There are many people that are hurting, especially around the holiday season. I think of a friend who lost a baby in the womb just recently, a few days ago, and how there's so much comfort in knowing the true and living God. And yet I think about so many folks who are in this world who don't have a relationship with Christ because there is a barrier. And Father, again, obviously we read about Mary, her life, her faith. We're wowed, we're amazed, we're thrilled. Lord, it is beautiful. But Father, the things that have been taught regarding her, the devaluing, depreciating of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Trinity It's staggering. Oh, Father, we don't want to be callous. We don't want to be short and patient. We don't want to be unnecessarily critical. But, Father, would you give us a heart to proclaim truth to people who believe lies? Would you help us to invest our time and energy, our prayers, into building relationships, to lovingly come alongside people and just open up the Word of God and let the Word of God be the Word of God. It is powerful to save. Oh, Father, help us in this new year to be faithful. Help us to depend on your grace, to grow in love, to grow in mercy, to grow in righteousness, all of which we cannot experience apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, over all these things, increase our 
faith. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Mary, who heard your word, believed your word, and acted on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.